Welcome to episode 9 of As You Were Saying. On this episode, we talk about love and addiction and black holes. If you'd like to leave us a review, go to iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a note, go to creativeandbeyond.com and use the contact form. Here's the show. Wait, what's the word? Incongruitous? That's not right. Well, hello, Aaron. Hi there, Gordon. What are you drinking? I am actually drinking some raspberry emergency. Oh, no. Are you sick? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yesterday, I was more sick, but I'm still recovering. So, feeling better, though. Is it chest, nose, ears, all of the above, some combination? Um, mostly nose and just feeling kind of tired. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you feel better. I hope the emergency does what it uh, purports to do. It it seems to, or at least I think it does. It's hard to tell for sure. And what are you drinking? I'm drinking a zero calorie, zero sweetener, zero sodium equals innocent exclamation mark, sparkling water, key lime, naturally essenced LaCroix. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's quite an introduction there. It's yeah. There, there's a lot of stuff on that can. I, you had, <laughs> I, I had you had to read it all. Well, I, yeah, I never paid that much attention to it until I was preparing for the show, and I'm like, oh, I gotta get this right. And I was like, oh man, there's a lot of a lot of words on here. <laughs> you could, hey, just, Bob. What do you? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> go on. What? Hey, Bob. What are you drinking? I am drinking a polar ruby red grapefruit seltzer. Ooh. Ooh. That sounds really delicious. It is delicious. Courtesy of uh, Gordon's uh, suggestion to start drinking soda waters. You've, you've taken it to heart, huh? Yes. It's all we drink now. Now, do you prefer that we call you Bob, or uh, would you like something more informal like Jack? <laughs> or Billy Bob <laughs> Joe Jack? I think Bob's probably fine. I may not respond to Jack, so I don't know how good of an idea that would be. <laughs> or, you don't respond to or Jack? Or I might, I might respond to Jack, so that could be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I oftentimes respond to Jack, so it's yeah. Probably probably best to go with Bob. We'll we'll do that. That'll catch we, my uh, ear the best. Uh, one time we were on a a boat full of Boy Scouts, and we decided decided to start calling out um, male names and to see if we could catch one of them, and then acted like we knew them from some time before. And uh, we it was like I think Mike was the one that worked, and we definitely confused a Boy Scout. <laughs> That's some deceiving, well, <laughs> I was trying to make a, a Boy Scout BS joke. I guess I could just say you were on a boat full of BS. That's true. And that true. would be sufficient. I was going to try and say something about it being some deceiving BS, but that doesn't quite translate into Boy Scout. So we'll just go with, you were on a boat full of BS. Yeah. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So Bob's on the show, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's happy yeah, it's happy. We're we're very happy to have you on the show. Um, we're we're excited to do some live follow up. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I thoroughly enjoy the episodes, all of them, but I thoroughly enjoyed selfishly the fact that uh, the last episode was solely dedicated to to uh, follow up and feedback. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and you were a good part of it. I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because I send boatloads of <laughs> unnecessary feedback so yeah. well, which we very much appreciate that spilled yeah. over into the second another episode so i'm gonna do some foreshadowing um but bob i have a question for you would you ever fly a spaceship into a black hole 
How old am I? You're 32. Oh. Mm, no, probably not. What if it was a pirate spaceship? Am I the pirate? <laughs> That's up to you. I don't think it matters. You're the spaceship. If I'm flying a pirate spaceship, I imagine it's my spaceship, or I've pirated it and have made it mine. So then, yeah, I've got some crazy life in outer space that probably would be willing to do it. What if you had wanted to do nothing more than to fly a spaceship into a black hole, and you wanted to do this more than life itself? <laughs> I, I imagine I would probably fly it in there then. What if, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Those are not my I mean, current desires. <laughs> you're, you're making it hard for him to say no at that point. I've, I've stepped into the, the desires that you've given me. Yeah. Well, don't do that. <laughs> I, I would remote fly a spaceship into a black hole. It seems like, <laughs> it seems like a safer way to go. Yeah, I think you're probably right. So, so that's... So that's that's what I was going for. It's actually a trick question, and you you passed Aaron and Bob. I'm very disappointed in you. Dang. It's okay, Bob. Bob's this is his first time on the show. He'll <laughs> give him a break. <laughs> yeah. So so Bob, I have a few uh, getting to know you questions actually. Oh sure. All right. So these these might be a little personal, but um, yeah, I'll leave it to your discretion how you want to answer. Uh, first first one here. Which branch of the military would you pick to win in a home run derby? Um, I want to say the Marines, just because mm-hmm. I associate the Marines with being really tough guys, but and and ladies. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that the way I think about them as tough matters for hitting home runs. <laughs> so who are the most? Maybe I'll say the Coast Guard. Because I want to, for some reason, I associate Coast Guard with being burly and barrel-chested. But maybe it's because they're always wearing sailors' vests and their yeah. chests just look really big. But I'll say Coast Guard. And they're they're kind of the underdog of the military, right? Well, I like that then. So I mean, that's that makes for a good baseball story. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was another trick question. Branches <laughs> of the military cannot play baseball; only their members can. Oh no. <laughs> okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It takes some time. I mean, these sorts of questions comprise our show so. <laughs> yeah i haven't done muriology in a while so i'm a little rusty <laughs> oh man so can you do maybe you should tell us what muriology is yeah you should that's a unfamiliar word uh actually i just lied I, uh, yeah it's the study of christmas joy Ooh, mariology hasn't been that long since you've done that yeah that's i like that that you uh, answered correctly on that one i love it <laughs> see i'm picking up fast <laughs> one yeah. point for bob yeah bob won uh gordon it's unclear all right i've got another question here sure if all the candy in the world transformed into one kind of candy what would you choose it to be i had to stop myself from cutting you off because i sort of knew where you were going and everything in me was just screaming reese's in my head (laughs) oh man you're a man after my own heart. I just, I heard candy and I just want to say Reese's. <laughs> so I'm surprised that you even chose candy in this case and didn't choose to remotely fly a spaceship into a black hole. Well, what if it's a spaceship full of Reese's? I would never fly to the new black hole. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible idea. That's a bad idea. I would, it's a waste. Yeah, I would die of overeating before that happened. Oh, hold on, hold on. This is a family show. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for keeping us in check there, Gordon. Yeah, that's what I do. All right, one last question for you, Bob. 
Mm -hmm. If you had complete control over one element from the periodic table of elements, which one would it be? Um, carbon. Mm, and why so? Because it's so fundamental to life. I feel like I could create a whole world. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that answer. Yeah, but... it is. That's it. You, you answered that pretty well. I appreciate that. Awesome. I haven't done biology since high school. <laughs> or chemistry, I yes. guess. <laughs> See? <laughs> there you go. I took an organic chemistry class a long time ago, and it was very, very hard. That's about all I remember from it, is that it was very, very hard. We were talking about um, it's like some of the hardest tests we've taken today at work with some of my colleagues, and one of the one of my colleagues said biology test. Said I took a biology test, and he's like, I think it was in high school, and it was the hardest test I've ever taken. I believe that. I remember biology being pretty hard and chemistry as well. And I think the when I had chemistry, it was the teacher's first year and his last year teaching. And there was like only, I don't know, four people got A's in the class. Yeah, it was tough. I again, I haven't taken biology or chemistry since high school, but I do remember it being, being very hard. The most, I, I can't remember the hardest test I've ever taken, but the most disappointing test I ever took was uh, this test where I, I expected it to be extremely difficult and there was just tons of material to memorize and I, yeah, it was just tough. And I come in and the instructor has us make a kid's book representing the material. And it was basically one of these things where, you know, they just wanted you to study and wanted you to work really hard, but then you're just going to get an A. And I felt robbed. Oh. And I, and I told, I told the instructor at the end that I felt robbed. I was like, I, I expected to like work hard, be challenged and like earn a grade. And you robbed me of that. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about my personality, but I, yeah, I don't know. Something about it really irked me. I felt like my, my effort was in some ways not respected. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds really frustrating, but you did learn. So mission accomplished. I guess so. What, yeah. What did you learn? I don't remember. <laughs> That's why I said, I guess so. Uh, all right. That's kind of the no. problem with, uh, in, in my opinion, with tests or school tests in general is a lot of times you're just memorizing something that you will soon forget just so you can pass a test. Yeah, this was, yeah, that's right. And this was a long time ago. So I, yeah. That's like why they're changing was, the, sorry, the math curriculum now. Are you talking about the, is it called Common Core? Yeah. It's, okay. it's like, I don't know if they're getting rid of a lot of the basic stuff, but they're definitely adding like understanding why the you're doing the certain things you're doing in math. You're not just learning the formula and doing the problems. You're understanding the reasoning behind it and why you're doing the things you're doing and the usefulness. It's, it's a sort of more holistic approach and underlying reasoning behind the stuff. I'm a fan. Yeah. Though I do think, I, I do think that memorization is extremely important at a very young age, but I am a fan of getting, you know, enforcing understanding beyond what we memorize as well. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. So did you guys hear about the picture of the black hole? I did. Yes. I not only heard, but saw. Yeah, this is incredible. I did. I did. I did very recently. I heard about that. <laughs> um. Yeah, this this astounds me. So there's so many cool things about this. 
I mean, black holes are both terrifying and extremely cool, uh, you know, just on their own. Um, but the way they took this picture, so from what the best I can understand, they have so so there's no um, piece of sensor equipment that we've made that can capture an image of the black hole um, currently. And so what they did was they they took a bunch of radio telescopes um, distributed across the Earth and wrote a program to um, collect all the data they were receiving and develop that into a picture. And so they basically turned, you know, these, these telescopes distributed across the earth into a giant telescope that was capable of taking this picture. And it's just so cool. It's such, such a, an amazing feat. That's scary. Scary. Yeah. It's scary. scary. It scares me. Black space scares me. Black holes scare me. They're probably the scariest part of space. That, uh, yeah, I think that's entirely fair. So just, just the thought of, uh, you know, there being something that, um, I guess, uh, attracts, uh, <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. Anyways. Whole so, solar systems? Uh, well, yeah. I, so the event horizon, once once anything, anything crosses an event horizon, it, it's gone. So, or we don't know what happens, but it's not, it's not coming back out the way it came in, um, which is, yeah, that's terrifying. So it's. Yeah, I mean, th- so the size of this black hole is also frightening. Um, it's 6.5 billion times the mass of the sun. Jeez. It's, um, it's like, too big to really comprehend. Yeah, that, yeah, it just doesn't even make any sense. So, um, I don't know. Now, that's the size, not the mass, right? No, that's the mass. Or that is the um, mass, okay. Yeah, so 65, width. no, so I am unclear. I'm unclear on, yes, right, uh, how how many inches it is across, <laughs> or or, so. or solar masses or whatever they use to. Yeah, I don't know. Do, I don't know what unit of measure they. I mean, I probably light years, maybe. Uh, um, yeah. It just depends on how big it is. I guess that makes sense. Um, and I don't know if there's. So let me let me back up. I actually I speculate that the black hole itself is um, uh, is point size. I may be wrong about that, but I th- believe that's at least theoretically i mean it's been like theorized that so when a sun dies the it the mass it's so you know the sun like a a, i'm sorry a star dies Mm -hmm. stars are so massive that once they run out of uh hydrogen and there's there are no longer these uh, chemical reactions to keep keep it expanded all of that mass starts to collapse in on itself and there's so much mass in some cases, that that process, um, I don't know, in some sense, never stops, and so it continues to shrink and collapse, and until you get infinite mass. So, um, I take it, given it's six point five billion times the mass of the sun, and not, you know, something else, it must not be point size, because that would, I think that would imply something, some uh, unfathomable amount of mass, like infinite mass. I don't even know what that means. But yeah, anyways, I don't know. Let's just say it's dime size. But the event horizon is, I don't know how large that is. So is the is the event horizon different from the size of the black hole itself? Or the edge of the black hole itself, I mean? Yes, it is. Um, so the black hole is going to be the, well, the black hole is going to be whatever, 
You know, I don't know. So yeah, they're. I mean, they're distinct. So they're at least distinct in this sense. You know, uh, the event horizon is going to be a um, boundary. So you know, there's you know, you walk through your door, and when you do that, there's a distinction between you know your door and the plane that you cross when you open the door and walk through it, right? Um, and likewise here. So there's going to be a difference between the black hole and the event horizon, which is going to be this boundary that once it, once that boundary is crossed, then there it's the point of no return. Um, and that and that boundary is going to be different from the black hole. I don't know if once you cross the event horizon, you are now in the black hole. I speculate not, but I don't know. So um, the, I, yeah. the event horizon is kind of like the chocolate coating and the black hole is the nougat center. I think a more apt analogy would be the event horizon is you've crossed the event horizon when you've seen the chocolate cake because you can't help yourself but eat it. <laughs> and so then you, you, you are pulled towards, <laughs> you, you rapidly fall through space and time maybe <laughs> into to, chocolate the, cake. to the chocolate cake. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds delicious. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, this thing, this thing is just so cool. They took eight, eight radio telescopes and aggregated the data to form this picture using machine learning and training algorithms and all of that on, you know, lesser to more complex pictures and, or I'm sorry, sets of, uh, radio signals. And yeah, it came up with this thing. It's, yeah, I've it's met, I read a little bit about it in I read that there, there was so much data they couldn't transfer it over an internet uh, or network. <laughs> yeah. they, they had to put it on hard drives and, and physically transfer it. Hey, Bob, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is the fastest way to transfer data? Never mind. I, was, I don't know. Cause I'm going to stop the question. I don't know if this is true anymore. So now <laughs> I feel... Is this a Star Trek question? I'm disappointed in myself. No, it's not. It, so... Data transfer speeds have gotten pretty fast. This, is, in a lot of cases, this is probably still correct, but basically, it's a little bit counterintuitive. The fastest way to transfer data for a long time was to like put it on a drive and get in a car and drive it. Um, and this is probably still true, depending on how much data you're transferring. But it used to be true with uh, smaller amounts of data than it is now. But say you've got, I don't know, hundred terabytes of data, and you need to, you know, send it to your neighbor. It's probably going to be way faster to just unplug the computer and carry it to your neighbor's house. Depending on how far away your neighbor is. That's true. How far can someone be away and still be your neighbor? That's, well, ask Mr. Rogers. There, I, there are neighborhoods, so it doesn't have to be are. next door. So wait, what does my neighbor's jacket have to do with this? <laughs> who, not neighborhood, is, not neighborhoodies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> who is your neighbor? Tell me that. So let me get this straight. You were going to ask me both a question about data and a make it a trick question. Well, I mean, it's a it's a longstanding, uh, you know, sort of idea that's just a little counterintuitive. I didn't know if you'd come across it before. I don't know. I know nothing about technology. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> well, then, given you know nothing about technology, maybe maybe you'll answer this question correctly. Okay. What is the best way to secure a computer against a attack over the internet to make sure it's updated no you 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 unplug it and take out the network cards yep 
Oh. You can't just unplug it. Oh, I guess the network cards they could still access wirelessly. Is that well? Yeah, I was worried about wireless stuff. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I I heard I don't even know where I heard this or who said it, and it was probably nowhere reputable. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> and it's it's probably not it's it's probably more like a rule of thumb type thing that that I heard somewhere. But I've heard that like if you want to protect your computer, the number one first thing you should do is just make sure that's up to date, and you should probably be fine. I I was hoping that you would say you have to burn the computer to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you you put it on a spaceship and you fly the spaceship <laughs> yeah. into a black hole. <laughs> See, but it's to the be only clear, way. Yeah, but to be clear, you're remote controlling the spaceship. Right, right, right. right. I thought I honestly thought you were going to say when you originally started the question, what's the safest way to keep your computer uh or to what how do you say to to keep someone from getting to your computer on the internet or something like that? Yeah, something like that. I thought you were going to say, don't get on the internet. <laughs> so I thought you were going to say, turn off the internet. And I was going to say, no, we don't want to turn off the internet because then the world would come to an end. Do you know how much relies on the internet? Uh, yeah. And, but then you didn't you didn't give me the opening. I had it all planned out in my head, though. <laughs> I gave you the rule of thumb I heard somewhere that I can't remember. <laughs> oh, just, just no, update good. your software. You'll be fine. No, that's so. That's actually really good. You should keep. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to keep your computer safe. Is you keep your software up to date. That's good because I check um, like every yeah. day just to make sure. After I heard that, I check like every day if there's updates. Nice. Yeah, good. You're a smart man. You are. So, uh, I'm. I'm interested. Do you? One thing I saw was they're saying because they use so many different satellites uh, across the globe to uh, image the black hole. That essentially, it's an Earth a satellite as big as the Earth is what they use. Would you agree with that? Uh, I don't know enough to say. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, strictly speaking, that seems false because if if I understand correctly, the the satellites, all the satellites were independently correct collecting data, and then there was an algorithm that crunched to that data and turned it into a visual representation of the black hole. And that doesn't sound. I mean, so yeah. I mean, I get the idea. Sure, that's. You know, it's a satellite as big as the Earth, um, but it's that's really different than say having you know one a giant you know radio uh, telescope dish that is literally the size of uh, the side of the Earth, yeah. or two having like a you know death, doing a Death Star sized uh, yeah, dish, yeah, exactly <laughs> right, um, or two somehow like I don't know uh, you know super sci-fi. We're going to beam lasers between, you know, our eight, you know, radio telescopes all over the earth. And once we get the beams correct, then we can, we can focus the beams and shoot like a really high powered beam at the satellite or at the, at the black hole and take a picture of it. And yeah, that, that to me also would sound like a satellite um, or a telescope the size of the side of the earth, but that's also not what they did. Do you actually know what the one, uh, the one trick that made it all work was? Um, they turned they they unplugged their computers and took out the network card <laughs> good good guess no they actually had to uh, in sync they had to play a, a sound garden song at the same time <laughs> oh yeah but is that can you guess which one uh let's see i'm trying to think of a sound garden song other than black hole sun but i can't so i'm I don't just going to go there, with black yeah, hole I don't sun know if there is one. <laughs> yeah. um that's that's what did it that's that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, so what, what, one, what technology can achieve these days is incredible. I know. 
So here's something else that's crazy. Um, I guess, I mean, this probably made someone's career. So the, I guess the first author on the paper is a graduate student at MIT, which is crazy. Um, it's this, this woman, Kate, <coughs> excuse me, this woman, Katie Bauman, I think I'm pronouncing that correct. B-O-U-M-A-N. And, um, yeah, she's, she's first author on the paper about this and man, what a, that, what a paper to be first author on. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's got a job. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. That's career making. I mean, she, yeah, pretty much you're sold there. Lots of pressure though for her next publication. Oh yeah. Yeah. How do you top that? (laughs) Her, her next one's going to be about uh, internet security, actually. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Just fly it into a black hole. Oh, my. So do you know where I first learned of that uh, that notion about internet security? Battlestar Galactica. Mm. Man, you sound like Dwight. <laughs> well, who's Dwight? The office. Yeah. Which, you guys are in an office together? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> come on beats oh. beats bears battlestar galactica <laughs> what are you doing so though was it jim that said beats bears battlestar galactica or was that dwight jim jim okay yeah. all right that's good trivia i'm glad i got that yeah good job good job hey, thank you thank you um all right well should we move on to some follow-up Yes. Do we have follow-up? I mean, well, we have our... Our Bob... Our live follow-up. Our, I see, I see. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, the I, follow-up king. The yeah, follow-up. Yeah, that's right. Don't, the, yeah. don't turn that into an acronym. Well, I, this is a family show. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> I would just... Pronounce, I mean, just tuck, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, so long ago... And we never addressed this. You wrote into the show and you, with a really interesting question that I don't think um, either Aaron or I knew how to address. And so we just didn't. Um, but we're, I want to talk about it now and I actually want to get your thoughts on it. Um, so, so long ago, um, I, I told Aaron that Gloria and I had had the talk and that although, you know, we weren't necessarily going to go buy an OLED TV. We also weren't going to do anything to 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 keep an OLED TV from being purchased, and we this this came up right. I mean, just sort of right on the tail end of a very difficult discussion about all of the suffering that's in the world and all the bad things that happen, right? And how difficult they are um, to even be aware of. And we just transitioned really quickly. And you wrote in asking us um, about like how. Um, how you know i i I guess like how we could make that kind of transition um what does that say about us um not and i take it you didn't mean you know uh, me and aaron but what does that say about humans that we can so quickly turn away from suffering and start talking about tvs that only a small portion of you know the population of the earth could afford to purchase um right so yeah yeah so tell, tell me more about this um, yeah, so I'm glad you qu- sort of qualified it at the end, um, because it was not supposed to be a charge to you or personally or anything like that, um, but it was more like an observation that 
I'm trying to remember exactly what your what your guys' conversation was about before that. Um, well, it was um, Raymond. It was about Raymond. Yeah, who oh, had a right, 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 aneurysm right, right. and a stroke. That's yeah. right. And then we, yeah, <clears throat> right. Excuse me. Yes. So I think my the the thing that I thought was I, I'm hesitating because I want to say interesting, but the thing that sort of caught my attention. I don't mean interesting like. Um, to be, I don't know, morbid or something like that. But um, the thing that caught my attention was that it's so easy for us to do something like that. And I include my, I when I say us, I mean people. So I mean, I'm including myself. Um, that we can recognize these things. And I think it's, I do think it's a little special when people like uh, you guys who have this podcast and like to talk about stuff like this, um, or people who have backgrounds in some sort of discipline, maybe in academia or something like that, who think about these kinds of things a lot, um, whether it's ethics or social policy or whatever. Some people who think about those kinds of things, the suffering in the world and whatever, I think that's actually kind of special. I think people don't really think about that stuff a lot, it's, at least not in detail. Um, but it's interesting that when we do sort of think about that, how quickly, even if we're thinking about it deeply, and someone who, say, works on this stuff or whatever how quickly we can turn around and just for, for, it's almost, you know, from the outside, it can sometimes seem like you almost just forgot what you were just talking about. Um, But, and again, it's not to say like, oh, this is bad. We shouldn't do this. Um, Maybe there's degrees of it that we shouldn't do, but it's just what we do. I mean, we still have to live a life. We still have to go about our day. It's some of the things we just can't help, but we notice and we talk about. Um, I just thought it was interesting, um, and I think, um, just to say one last thing, I think another thing sort of piggybacking on that that I thought was interesting or that caught my attention was that um, part of part of what I think might be an explanation for that is that we have a really hard time actually comprehending how bad the world is sometimes, how much suffering there is. Um, we can talk about it, and we can state the fact and state our belief that we know it's true um, because we have some statistics or whatever Um, but really understanding how much bad is is there I think would I don't know I don't know I guess intuitively seems to conflict with the idea that you could just turn around and talk about something in like a really cavalier manner Um, and again this is not supposed to be an attack not like you were just being like well cavalier after whatever but hopefully you get the idea like it's just really I don't know. It's an interesting fact about people that that's what happens. Yeah, I think you raise a good point. Uh, I think it's it seems to me like it's a coping mechanism in some way, um, and also it just helps to like I don't know. Naturally, it helps to introduce levity after a difficult topic. Yeah. What do you, What do you think, Gordon? Yeah. No, I think. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good point, and I mean it's there's two different things potentially going on. I mean, one is that we just forget. And the other one is that we, um, we stop expressing our, um, our feelings about the suffering and stop. They, they're no longer represented in the way that we're speaking, the things that we're, we're talking about or speaking about. Um, however, I, I take, I do take it that very quickly, even if, even if initially it's just, okay, we're going to stop, you know, um, presenting, our thoughts on suffering, you know, in virtue of what we're talking about very quickly, I think we do start to forget. Um, 
but I think, you know, it sounded like, uh, Bob, this is consistent with what you're saying. I mean, I take it you're not suggesting that we need to be thinking about this all the time, all the time. And that if we were aware of how much suffering there is, I mean, it would, you know, increase, increase the suffering, right? I mean, it would be debilitating. Um, so, but I, I do assume that maybe I take it. It's a good thing to be aware of suffering and to increase our capacity to, um, be aware of and appreciate suffering. Um, but just not to the point of it being debilitating, of course. Yeah, that, that seems right. Um, I don't, yeah, I definitely don't think we should be thinking about it all the time. Um, this, I mean, this is like one of the, at least like a version or a kind of analog to one of the objections to, you know, one of the famous objections to consequentialism is just like the no rest objection. If you were just trying to think about the suffering and in the consequentialist framework, which is the view that you should, you know, the right thing to do is to maximize happiness and well-being. An objection is like, well, if you were really trying to do that and eliminate suffering all the time, you just would never be able to do anything. There's just always going to be something to do. And so in the kind of a similar vein, yeah, I don't think we should be thinking about it all the time because there would just be nothing else to think about because there's enough of it to think about it all the time. But yeah, I, I mean, I think you're both right that it's we forget sometimes and it is a kind of, um, I can't remember the, the word um, you use, but... Uh, like alleviates kind of yeah, coping coping mechanism yeah like a coping mechanism um but it, another thing that um i think another reason i guess why i it caught my attention and i thought it was interesting is because <clears throat> there's a version of it that's um not so much that way it's not so much like oh we can recognize this suffering or these bad things and talk about it and you know contemplate over it or whatever and then we got to just sort of put it to the side and, and um, just try to do our best to get along with our day. A, another version of it is that is a sort of contradictory version that I think more that happens more in a sort of lay context where people will point out certain things that they think are bad or, um, I don't know, wrong or negative or um, unfortunate and then in the next breath sometimes um, talk about something else that totally contradicts what they just said, that this other thing is bad, but they don't realize because they're not thinking about it hard enough that those things sort of contradict each other or they're inconsistent or something. And a quick example is something like uh, somebody says something like um, how much they, uh, you know, love their dog and they care about, or they were so upset when they're, their dog was hurt because it, you know, had to get physical therapy or had to get some surgery or something. And like, oh, it just broke my heart because little Fido was in such pain. And, you know, then they take a bite of their hamburger and you know what I mean? It, those kinds of things, like, I don't know. That's a, a dirt, quick and dirty example. Maybe it's not the best, but that's another way in which this happens where there's this talk of, badness and suffering or whatever else and then just very quickly we can engage in something or or say something else that totally puts it to the side i guess yeah so it's right so there's something incongruous wait what's the word incongruitous that's not right <laughs> incongruous um, without the t yeah incongruous and in- incongruous. incongruous i can't I think, pronounce things i think that's right yeah so i used to be able to and then i was attacked by a chimera um, <laughs> you used to kid. I used to kid. Oh, that's a whole nother story. So, 
All right. Uh, yeah, there's something that doesn't fit uh, with what I guess like the two like actions or two things that were being said, right? That that's what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, so an ex- another example might be you're having a discussion, you're like on the phone and you're like, Oh yeah, these people don't have any money. And because of that, they're starving, yada, 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 which I could help. And then they go, Oh, hold on a second. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll supersize that. And you know what? Uh, make that two hamburgers. Um, right. And spend, you know, more money on food they don't need and things and that, yeah, there, there is, there's a tension there. That's yeah. I don't know. That's, this is hard. I mean, this is why we didn't talk about this is because I don't, I don't really know what to say other than I agree with what you're saying. I I think too, going back to what you're saying before about um, suffering and and having a concept of suffering in the world, I think that relates to a struggle that I felt and I've, I've seen a lot of other people deal with in, uh, in deciding how much news you should take in and not not wanting to be just completely uninformed but then there's also a point at which you're you're watching or consuming so much news and most news is bad news um, Mm -hmm. and it becomes a detriment to you Mm -hmm. yeah i yeah it's hard to i don't even look at the news anymore really i used to i downloaded the cnn app i think and the fox news app just so i could try to have a little balance because even though Fox News tells me that they're fair and balanced, try right, to have, right. <laughs> I, you know, and I would like switch back and forth. Like in the same day, I would scroll in one and then open the other and scroll in the other. I just can't mm-hmm. do it anymore. I just, it's, first of all, it's all about the president, which yeah, I just want to stay away from. Uh-huh. But other than that, yeah, I mean, I, I, you'd find a gem in there every once in a while you're scrolling down and it's like, a cool little video of something that went viral that was like nice and yeah, everything else is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, um, I have a, a, maybe a site or two that isn't actually a news site, but I just know that if anything big happens, it'll show up there. Um, so it's kind of, it's a filter in that sense that they're not, their point is, or they're not dedicated to actually producing or representing the news. But if something big happens, at least I'll see it somewhere. Um, and it's mostly just like fun, entertaining content instead. Um, but, but yeah, when I used to just specifically go to news sites, uh, it, it kind of became exhausting for me. It really is. And I, and I, what you said hits it right on the head. I, I feel really compelled to want to go look because I want to be informed. I want to know what's going on. Yeah. I've, I've had this discussion with my wife a number of times, like, I just really hate politics. I mean, that's one way to say it. Like, I, tr- I, I want to not. I want that not to be the case. I want to be able to get into it and learn about it. But when I turn it on and I hear these people talking, it's so frustrating and it's always negative and they're always fighting and they're always just saying something bad about the quote other side, and it's just really frustrating. And I'm not on social media either anymore, and so. I just get no news now, and I have this, just back to this conflict, like, I want to be informed, so I want to go read this stuff, but most of it is just crappy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's especially the case for what's easily accessible, so your cable news networks and what have you, or at least, uh, and I guess let me be clear, it's, it's the... It's what's on most of the time on the cable news networks. I do think there are quality shows, 
um, that you can find and you get more well-reasoned opinions and more data and things like that. But it's not, it's not what's going to be on, you know, the, the majority of the, you know, 24 seven, um, programming. Yeah. And, what's, and so, what's mass consumed. Right. Exactly. Uh, it's going to be harder to get your hands on because you're going to have to, you know, record it, find it someplace else, um, wrap your schedule around it. Um, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, but I do think that there are good, you know, I, I don't know. I, so like wall street journal, New York times, you know, have good articles, Washington post. Um, but again, you've got to find them and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily going to be what, you know, pops up, you know, on your Twitter feed or what, you know, what have you. So, but it's, yeah, it's hard. It's a challenge. And it, yeah, I think it takes a lot of work to, to find, find the good stuff. Yeah. And then, I mean, sort of coming full circle, what inevitably will happen is, as you mentioned, I can't remember which one of you mentioned this, but there's just nothing but bad stuff. I mean, you, you can get so much negative. You can see all this suffering that's happening <clears throat> in the world. And if you want to be informed, you look at it and you're going to, you know, see the next school shooting or whatever it is, like the some war or some bomb got blasted or dropped somewhere or whatever and then you go to work or to school or whatever and you want to be informed because you want to be know what's going on and converse with people about it because you want to talk about the issues or whatever and you talk about it and then like five minutes into the conversation everyone's depressed and you're talking about how terrible it is in syria or whatever and then like on a dime you're just like yeah so how about that expense report or whatever (laughs) and then you just start talking about something else because that's what we have to do. And so, again, it's just like this, recog- just recognizing that it's just this like really interesting fact about us that we can think about this stuff that's really terrible, whether it's terrible in the sense of suffering or whether it's terrible in the sense of just badness, like the news people fighting with each other all the time. And then we talk about it with others and we try to understand it and get some understanding of it or get to the bottom of it or whatever. And then, it's, you know, a minute later, we're talking about cheeseburgers and what we're going to go get from Best Buy for Christmas gifts and whatever. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, I mean, it's, I I guess it's, it's not like this is brand, brand new, but we live in a difficult era where we are more informed than ever before. And it's, it's sort of a burden that we have to bear now or choose to not bear. Um, And it can, I can, I think it can be damaging to us in, in some ways because you know a lot of things um, that are awful that are going on that you really have no power over and can't do anything about, um, but still feels like you should or you bear some responsibility in it. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to read some feedback that you sent us. Um, again, I think this was a while back. Uh-oh. And yeah, <laughs> um, because I just want to get your thoughts. No, no tricks. Sure. No tricks. Okay. At least not not, not immediately. Um <laughs> All right, so this is what you say. You say, Gordon mentioned, and um, you agreed rightly, that the combination of no free will and legitimate fear of final judgment, um, that is, the presence of genuine moral responsibility slash sin, is seriously problematic, uh, perhaps incoherent. I agree. I take it that you agree, right? Um, But I wonder what you two would say to someone who tried to draw the following analogy between this issue and the solution you guys have discussed the problem of gratuitous evil that is god has some good reason for allowing the evil um though we know 
though, though we know we don't know what that reason is. As God knows, or I, I'm sorry, <laughs> as Gordon knows, many compatibilists. <laughs> oh, hey there. <laughs> oh boy. Um, uh, many compatibilists, and a compatibilist is just somebody who thinks that we can be free and completely determined in our actions. Um, just don't see the problem with having no ultimate control, right? Because they're compatibilists. You you can be free without having ultimate control, and yet still being morally responsible. But why shouldn't we say to the above? solution to gratuitous evil that this um, that this is just like those who don't see the problem with a particular combination in question in other words absence of ultimate control to moral responsibility um as uh, i'm losing what this sentence means i thought i read this and it made sense but now all of a sudden it doesn't in other words absence of ultimate control is to moral responsibility as presence of apparently gratuitous evil is to presence of god i see mm-hmm. in all of his properties it's like an so S- sat question yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's uh, answer number C. Um, right, so you're saying um, this this ultimate control and moral responsibility, why not just say, well, they can go together in the same way as um, gratuitous evil and God can go together, something like that. Right, the lack um, lack of ultimate control and moral responsibility. I see, okay. Right. Um, and you say, how? Right. And then I say what the the puzzle is, or the not the puzzle, the question is, why can't, when you say, how can they go together? How can you have responsibility without just whatever, ultimate control, uh, free will, whatever? And I say, in the same way that you can have uh, God and gratuitous evil. And you say, oh, how's that? And then I say, oh, I don't know. But, you know, it's just because there's, there's an explanation there. It's just we don't really know what it is yet. But I'm so confident in one of the premises or whatever that there must be an explanation. Um, I and to preempt, I understand there's a difference in the confidence and the premises in one of the cases, and then there is in the other. But I mean, you've met compatibilists. the The assumption is similar to the assumption that a libertarian has, which is someone who thinks that we do have free will, um, but that those two things are incompatible. Um, that the determinism, whatever. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah. yeah. So let me just get clear. So the the comparison, the comparison is this: um, you might think, uh, just we've studied the world and it doesn't look like we have control. Um, but then you also say, "Look, um, I, I know I'm free, therefore um, I can be free and not have control." And so that's the first, the first part. And then you're you're comparing that first part to this other notion, which is. Um, Look, we've we've studied the world, and it looks like there's a lot of unnecessary evil, evil that's not required for the good. Um, you know, um, so this this makes it seem like God doesn't exist, but I know God exists. Therefore, this this evil and God can can exist at the same time. Right, and just for a slight modification, in the God case, you would want to say, knowing that God exists. Um, sort of tells us that the evil isn't gratuitous, right? Because um, we know they're not logically inconsistent, as you guys discussed. Um, we say, like, what's well, gratuitous, though? And then we say, well, no, there must be some reason. We just don't know what it is. Therefore, it's not gratuitous. And in the same way, if that's right, the person who wants there to be freedom and responsibility, even when there's no ultimate control, because, say, determinism is true or whatever, they don't say, oh, we can be free without control. They can say, no, it turns out we, we do have control. That's just what freedom is, this type of control that I've laid out for you. It's not ultimate control, uh, but it turns out we don't need ultimate control, but we still have 
we just found out this is what this is what free will is. You thought free will was something else, just the same way the person says you thought that was gratuitous evil, but it's not. So, so since we're talking about free will, can I ask you guys some questions? Sure. Is this oh, yeah. is this a good time for that? So uh, so briefly, let me hear from each of you. How would you describe what it means to have free will? Gordon. Oh no, uh, guests guests have to yes, go first. first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the ability to do otherwise. What would you say, Gordon? I would say the ability to do otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> and by ability, I mean, um, given a situation, if it's the case that I make some decision or, um, perform some action, I'm, I'm free in regards to that decision and that action. If it's the case that, um, were you to roll back time, I could have, made a different decision or perform some other action. All right. So let me ask this. Is there a difference between being able to make decisions and having free will? Yes. I agree. There is, there is a distinction. What's the difference? Free will goes away if the world is determined. Making decisions does not. Mm-hmm. I think making decisions is just, can be described just sort of phys- physically. I mean, it's just having a mental state forming an intention, saying certain words, and, you know, performing, maybe performing an action, maybe you don't have to perform an action to make a decision, but it's like form, basically like forming an intention might be a really good example of one way you can make a decision. I decide that I'm going to watch, you know, a movie tonight. You might say, um, forget all the nitty-gritty details of the philosophers of action, but like, you might say, I just, just formed an intention. And all, all that is is just to form a mental state. And that can happen and, in a deterministic world. And would that movie be free willy? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, um, I mean, just to add, I got Michael yeah, Jackson add, in my head now. <laughs> oh, um, so just to add to what Bob said, uh, yeah. So a decision is going to be the output of a particular sort of process, probably a particular sort of output as well. And free uh, free will or freedom in regards to a decision is going to be it being the case that that decision could have been different. All right. So, and Bob, you probably covered, I feel like we might've covered this in the discussion before, but let me ask it anyway. Uh, could I still have free will in a world where the future is preordained? Um, that's hard. That's so funny. I was just talking about this today with a colleague. <laughs> For, uh, I try to bring philosophy into uh my work as much as possible uh and i have some books on my on my desk at work and uh one of the unit managers where i work was asking about it and he said oh it's so funny because there's i have a book about free will um on there and he's like oh free will it's so funny i was just talking to my sister the other day and we were talking about like you know we're having this argument he's like oh if god knows everything then can you be free and I'll say what I said to him, which is not an answer to the question. It's just like, that's tough because it's not clear that just this epistemic condition, just the knowing of the future is enough uh, to undermine freedom. Um, Because undermining freedom, I think, takes a metaphysical condition or state of affairs or whatever. Uh, There needs to be a metaphysical premise going on. Um, and just to say that somebody knows something is going to happen. Um, 
Yeah. By metaphysical, you mean like something causal? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yes. So I, so I take it the, so the upshot is my no, no knowledge is going to cause something to happen. At least not, uh, I guess at least like, or we should say like, especially in the case where, you know, um, what's going to happen isn't, you know, in the mind of the knower. So if I, if I know something about you, there's no way that's going to make you do anything. And it seems like we can say the same thing about God. Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, yeah. That well, maybe softer than that, which is just that it's not clear that that's going to be enough. Yeah. Um, so to answer the question more straightforwardly, I don't think so. I mean, it, just something being knowing that something. Did you say knowing something is preordained? Uh, I say where the future is preordained. Okay. That sounds a little different. Maybe I misunderstood. Yeah. It. No, I, I, I actually like, um, I, I like your answer, um, whether I phrased the question well or not. Okay. I, like, I like where you went with it. So if you and mean, I, and the, I think, I oh. think you answered the question I meant to ask, okay. whether I asked it correctly or not. Okay, good. Yeah, I take it your so your question, Aaron, was if God knows exhaustively the future, um, can we be free? Was that the idea? Yeah. Okay. That's that's fine. I mean, I think preordained can mean a lot of different things, but I think that's a reasonable interpretation of that. Yeah. And because I really dislike this view so much, um, I have to say what I did not mean. If by preordained, you mean the future is, um, determined, then no, you can't be free. So you'd make a distinction there. Yeah. And you mean causally determined. Yes. Sorry. Causally determined. Yeah. Where, where that's different in that knowing God's knowing it, um, there's this, the question I was talking about earlier was, is there this link between God's knowing the future and the future being causally determined? And I was saying not, maybe not necessarily just God's knowing maybe is not enough to make you not free being causally determined. Yeah. That's enough to make you not free. So maybe tell me if this example resonates. So you've got like a minute left in a basketball game and you know, your team is up by, I don't know, 20 points and you know that your team's going to win. And so you're, you're going to go ahead and start celebrating. It seems reasonable. And it's because you know you're going to win. But that doesn't mean that the team couldn't all just like walk off the court or, you know, something happen that results in them losing. It just means you know they're going to win. And that's it. And you're right. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 Because, I mean, I think we mean something different by no there. But that's, di- that's different than God knowing the future. Oh, well, in, in matter of, yeah, do you, are you just, you just mean because God can't be wrong? Is that, that the idea? That's right. And that's super, um, super important. So it, it is, but I mean, the point still stands. If God is the one cheering, you know, for, you know, for the home team, you know, God knows the home team is going to win, but that doesn't mean that the players couldn't stop and walk off the court. Oh, I think it's that's just, in question. It's just, it's just not going to happen. I just think that's in question. Yeah. Well, then it, intuitively. In, it, that's why I wanted to say it's not clear if the, the knowing that got the, an infallible knower, um, just the knowledge there and the knowledge is being infallible. I don't know that that undermines free will because I don't know if that connects so cleanly to the causal metaphysical stuff. But your knowing, even though I want to say you truly know the person that you're going to win, 
um, that's different because it's fallible. And so now I don't have this connection to possible metaphysical determinism. So, yeah, I, I, I think Bob has a good point. That's it's sort of a different thing. You don't have an absolute assurance of no, no human has an absolute assurance of something. Yeah, absolutely. The, the point is just this. There are things that could happen that never will happen. And so, so that, that's what makes the space for God to know, um, what, what, what is definitely going to happen infallibly yet we still have freedom because we, we could have done otherwise. We just won't. Um, but we, we, we have the power to, we just won't exercise that power. Now there's, it's a whole can of worms. Um, don't get me wrong. All right. But that's, I think that's the, I, I thought that's what you were saying earlier was like, this is why it's unclear whether, you know, God's knowing the future infallibly steals our freedom because knowledge doesn't knowledge. God's knowledge doesn't entail that we don't have the power to do something different than what God knows. It just entails that we won't exercise that power. Yeah. I think I tried to carefully say it's not clear Yeah, that it doesn't entail that. Yeah. I, so it may, I, what you said is I understand and is coherent, but also sounds counterintuitive. It's very counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but yeah, so I didn't mean to misrepresent you. I just meant the, that's the that's why it was unclear. Yeah, it was because that's like, a because possibility, of this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I that that I mean, it's, it, despite being counterintuitive, I can grasp that concept. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, some people are going. I mean, an example maybe if to make sure I understand you, Gordon, is to say, um, like a vase can. It's true to say the vase could break even though it never will something like that um yeah that's and, right and I, god might know yeah. it will never be in a situation where it's going to break but it still would be true to say it could break um but if we want i don't know <clears throat> if if we start saying asking questions about that and saying really like it never will never never ever um what's the i don't know it's do we want to say that it could break uh in any possible situation that it's that it's going to be in, or that that sounded weird. Uh, it, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just sounds a little weird. I guess is all I want to say that it it in fact will never break, no matter what we do to it. But it's could break. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, so this is slightly unrelated, but it's more related than you think. So I'm a big Counting Crows fan. Yes. <laughs> um, among their songs that I like to listen to, I, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination it's one of their best songs, um, but I, I still like it. It's called Love and Addiction. Now, Bob, I hear that you are somewhat of an expert in, in one of those. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> is, that, oh, is that an... Uh... I didn't know that that was an exclusive war. <laughs> well, I didn't. No, no, no. I, maybe it's not, he's it's both. Not, yeah, maybe both. Like I don't know. That's, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So you know a lot about addiction, and I wanted people call him both the love guru and the addiction guru. <laughs> Some might say I'm addicted to love. Oh, oh boy! Zing. Oh, nicely done. Bob. I hope nicely. it's not tainted love, because oh, that would goodness. be sad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I am. It's been a while, but yeah, I know some things about addiction. 
Yeah, you've done uh, research on addiction, and this is among the reasons you know a lot about free will, things of that sort. Um, so, yeah, we yeah, let's let's talk. Let's yeah. talk about addiction. It's probably the other way around. I know about addiction because of the stuff I know on free will, at least causally. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, <laughs> so the, the free will led to addiction. Yeah, that's right. That's how it all. That's always the story. <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah, actually. That's not true. Oh, uh, we're going to get yeah. into moral that's luck again. Not yeah, let's view. not do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let me ask some questions then. Sure. About about addiction. Uh, so, what, Bob? What do you believe is the most common misconception about addiction? Oh man, which one <laughs> of the many? Um, probably that, or just the biggest one. Probably that it's a disease. Hmm. Yeah, like it's a it's a physical state. I should let me qualify that. Probably because I think this is going to be the same answer. I think, um, but I should be more careful because even saying that it's a that addiction is a disease that's already a lot of technical terms already. Um, mm-hmm. The way people are talking about that in the addiction literature. So I should say the I think the most common misconception is to think the the claim that addiction is a brain disease disease of the brain uh entails that addicts somehow don't control what they're doing they don't have free will that they're determined to use or to engage in using related behaviors it's it's kind of like saying someone's born an alcoholic yeah yeah i think the same thing happens that talk about being born an alcoholic talk about there being a genetic um component or predisposition or whatever genetic influence or uh some genetic explanation to the variances or whatever you want to say when you start bringing in genetic stuff or being born as Mm -hmm. people just think oh that means you're it's inevitable you're just going to be an addict or if you say john is an addict and then someone from the National Institute on Drug Abuse tells you, oh, addiction is a brain disease. And automatically you think, oh, well, that means John doesn't have control and John doesn't choose what he does when he uses. That, I think, is the biggest misconception Hmm. among both lay people and clinical people. So can I, let me just, I just want to clarify, when you say disease, do you mean something like the common cold or something like depression? Something like depression. Okay. Yeah. Something like even, well, probably depression is a good example, but maybe even more like, because um, I, I want to stay away from depression because that's super controversial too. Yeah. Um, maybe something more like diabetes is probably a better example. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Can, it's can a, you flesh that out? Yeah, yeah. So it, this this is actually the example that, or one of the examples that gets used when um, the comparison gets made, um, addiction is a disease like like diabetes is a disease in that um, you don't control your your insulin levels. Your is it the pancreas? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, you don't control how much insulin your pancreas produces <clears throat> when it, when it produces it or the levels, and in the same way. If addiction is a brain disease, if that ends up being true, we're going to get the same kind of result. But where 
instead of we're instead of talking about insulin levels being produced, we're going to be talking about choices being made, addiction or not addiction, drug drug related choices or drug related behaviors being made or being performed. That's going to be the output of the disease, something like that, roughly. And the comparison that gets made is we should treat addiction like a disease in the way we treat diabetes like a disease. We don't blame people for having diabetes. We don't blame people for, um, you know, having to make these injections or whatever. Um, And we shouldn't blame addicts for using drugs when they don't have any more control over it than than a diabetic does in their insulin levels. So what would be your answer to that? Answer to the question of what? What, Well, what, so what? So you're saying this is a misconception in, in oh, your estimation. So right, right. what is the correct view? Well, the most simple sort of response to it without getting into any other issues that because all this stuff sort of is like so intertwined. But just just that particular issue sort of narrowed down. I would just say look, disease and control are not connected conceptually at all that one doesn't entail the other you can have diseases that don't have anything to do with control you can have control or lack of control and it doesn't tell you anything about whether you have a disease it just all i want all i would want is for them the people who do this in particular the disease model of of addiction proponents is for them to just stop making this direct connection between trying to establish that addiction is a disease and then thinking that that's going to be sufficient to establish that addicts lack control. So my response is just addiction, or sorry, disease and control are not conceptually connected like that in order for you to make that move. That's pretty interesting. I haven't really, uh, I, I can see, I haven't really thought of it much. Um, but yeah, I can see how, yeah, do you think it's it's more helpful to not see it as a disease? I mean, does it does it give more options to the person who is suffering from addiction? Um, that's really hard. I I mean, I think there's some merit. I think there's some merit to that. Um, I so I'll say I'll try to remember these. I'll say three things. Try to be brief with each of them. So one is the part of the main motivation for the disease model, or at least one of the main motivations for the disease model is explicitly that it's going to reduce like stigma. Uh, Like, look, we don't blame diabetics, right? So if we think of addiction as a brain disease, we can lose this like stigma against addicts. It's not their fault, right? So that's one sort of motivation. And that's a good intentioned motivation. Um, But the one problem with that is um, Wayne Hall and some other people, some of his colleagues, I don't remember where he's at. He's a researcher, but they've done a few studies where um, they've shown that, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to remember the details of the studies because it's been probably more than a year since I've looked at them, but the rough idea is they had two groups, one where they took some people, um, and I think that they had both addicts and non-addicts, um, but they split them into groups. So if they had both addicts and non-addicts, there would be it would be two by two. So one group of addicts and non-addicts and another group of addicts and non-addicts. And in one case, they were told that addiction was a disease. They were given sort of like the disease model. And in the other case, they were given like a non-disease model. And then they asked them lots and lots of questions. Um, For the non-addicts and the addicts, I think they asked them questions about like their perceptions of addicts. So non-addicts' perceptions of addicts, addicts' perceptions of themselves and uh, and of other addicts. 
for the addicts. They asked them questions about use, how many times you drink, blah, 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 stuff like that. And there was just no difference. There's just no difference. Um, when it doesn't make people like blame them less, it doesn't make addicts like drink any less or anything like that. They didn't find any significant differences in stigma and behavior um, between the people who they primed with the addiction or sorry, the disease model and the people who they primed with like a choice or behavioral model. So that's one thing. It, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, um, I shouldn't say that. I should say it this way. There's some evidence that goes against this idea that the disease model will reduce stigma. Um, so the other thing to say is Mark Lewis um, thinks that giving people the disease model will actually be harmful because it will make them sort of apathetic or um, what's a better word? They'll just like sort of succumb or acquiesce to this idea that, that just inevitably they're going to be an addict, they're going to use... Um, they'll, they'll have like a fatalist approach to yeah, it. Yeah, something like that. And like, um, and there's some good good um, reasoning behind that, which is even in sort of the AA circles, um, there's this thing with addiction um, as your identity um, in these circles. And I mean, this is, addicts will tell you, I mean, like it's like becomes part of your identity. Identity is just huge in addiction for the addicts. Mm-hmm. And so there's something to that. Like if you tell them disease, and like we just talked about earlier, people really think disease means inevitable, means determined. Um, yeah. And so if you tell them that, it's going to be hard for recovery, and they're going to, you know, be down about their prospects or whatever else. So there's that too. And the last thing is, um, uh, trying to remember. So, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget the third point. But anyways. Uh, not that important. The, the, It'll come to you. Yeah. The motivation for um, disease, there's a little bit of evidence against that. The motivation that it will reduce stigma. Um, oh, I remembered it. Uh, the idea that they'll be apathetic and fatalist or whatever. But there's also, the third thing is, um, there's this thing called motivational interviewing, um, which is, in short, it's this idea that um, you can sort of appropriate the addict's desires to quit um in a sort of structured counseling style therapy style um program so you do sort of therapy-based um recovery programs and motivational interviewing is just sort of like a, a technique that you use in the therapy sessions but it's predicated on the idea that the addicts are sort of ambivalent that's the sort of key term in motivational interviewing. They want to keep using, but they also want to quit. Um, and so you you have to like work with these two sort of conflicting desires. And motivational interviewing has like tons and tons of evidence behind it for how good it is for recovery, um, for recovery rates, getting people to stop using, for getting people to reduce the amount that they use, for getting people to stay um, recovered once they've stopped or reduced. Um, it's really, really good. Um, it's good in conjunction with certain pharma pharmacological recovery, um, or, um, um, therapies that they have. Um, so there's a lot of support for motivational interviewing as a really good recovery tool, but it's predicated on the idea that addicts have control, some control, at least that they're not determined, um, that, that there's no disease presumption there. So I think there's a lot going against the idea that addiction is a disease, um, or at least in response to your question, to thinking about it that way at least. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me more helpful if 
if you feel like you have some control over it as opposed to it's just part of who you are and there's not much you can do about it. But I, I guess my, my thoughts are the most important thing is that we actually have an accurate model, not just a model that like is more pleasing or like more socially acceptable, but, but like the most accurate model of what addiction actually is. Cause I mean, it's, if, if it's a disease and that is like, there's ways to prove that, that there's like something physical happening in them. Um, but if it's not, then there's ways to prove that. And whatever is true is understanding that the better we understand that it seems is we can then uh, help people who have addictions better. Yeah. And so I, I want to draw out a sort of um, kind of misconception there too, um, okay. which is that there's tons of evidence that there's, um, how do I say, uh, I want to say abnormal, but like, um, um, there's, there's put it this way. There's tons of evidence that there's lots of systematic changes going on in the brain, um, between an addict and a non-addict, lots of systematic changes, differences in like the number of dopamine receptors that they have. Um, and these things are, can also be like, um, Precur- not precursors, but like predictors. So you might be mm-hmm. more likely to become an addict if you have less um, dopamine receptors, uh, if you have certain genetic makeup or whatever. Um, but there's, we know that the brain changes in systematic ways in addiction. And we know that addicts act differently outside of the brain. They make decisions differently systematically. They discount delayed rewards differently. Um, but that isn't that's just telling us that there's a difference i mean it's like here's a caricature example uh sort of counter example uh there was this i don't know who did it but there was a study of cabbies in in the uk and they have uh, a lot more gray matter in their hippocampus because the hippocampus is uh involved in memory and spatial memory and they Uh, have to memorize all these streets right and so yeah they have lots more gray matter um that doesn't make cabbies that doesn't mean cabbies have a disease it just means that the brain changes when we do things differently there's systematic changes in addicts behavior and the way that they think so of course there's going to be systematic changes to the brain but that doesn't yet tell us that there's a disease going on um, right and so this it, is it's like saying just because they had an enlarged hippocampus that's why they became a cabbie yeah this is this is exactly the problem that Mark Lewis discusses in his book, which I think is really great. I think his arguments, ultimately, his book is called The Biology of Desire. It's a really good book. He's a cognitive neuroscientist who was a heroin addict, and he got clean and went back to school and became a cognitive neuroscientist and studied addiction. It's a really cool book. There's some um, stories in it of some of his patients, and it's really cool. And But he, I mean, does this just really great job of pointing out that, like, look, I'm going to accept all the neuroscience. He thinks that the people that doing all this work, they're, yeah, they're showing us lots of things that are true about the brain, but that doesn't mean it's a disease. Yeah, it's the, it's the assumptions that you come up with from the science. Yeah, you have to make, yeah, that's right. You, the, just giving us the fact that the brain changes is not enough. Right, right. You're doing more stuff. Because there's a, there's a lot of things that cause the brain to change. Yeah. And it's not it's not a thing that's set in stone and and uh, you know there's parts of our environment that cause or things that we do or things that happen to us that cause changes in the brain. And the biggest 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 
biggest problem is that none of the main brain disease proponents ever tell us what a disease is. Mm. So it's, like, it's not clearly defined. No, it's not defined. Forget clearly defined. Yeah, at all. It's not defined. They never define disease. They define addiction in terms of disease. Addiction is a brain disease characterized by blah, 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 all this compulsive behavior with harmful consequences. And they never tell us what a disease is. Hmm. That it's, seems like a problem. Huge problem. We're supposed to just yeah. think, oh, it's when the brain is systematically different than people you're calling not addicts. And now we have decades and decades of research on, on quote, addicts who get put into the study as addicts by qualification by meeting qualifications in the DSM, which is terrible. Hmm. Well, that was awesome. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. Was, uh, I'd learned a ton. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. No, that's really cool. Um, well, we're, we're running, I think we're running out of time. Yeah. I know it's a shame because I have more questions. <laughs> um, I have a lot I want to ask Bob now. <laughs> sorry, I'm probably being too long-winded. No, no, no it's, this is great. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, and this is, this is the kind of, this is the stuff I love is that um, having someone who <laughs> really knows what they're talking about and being able to explain things like this. So, and addiction is a huge thing. I've, from uh, I feel like things I've learned recently is, um, and, we, and we don't have to talk too long on this, but just something that's come to mind is things I've learned a lot recently is that they're finding a lot of addiction and addictive behavior um, is more based on a person's social environment than it is on the substance that they're addicted to. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting stuff. Um, I won't. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't. I know we're running out of time, but I'll quickly yeah. just say Bruce Alexander is probably the person to look at there. He's probably the semin. He has the seminal paper there, which was the study that he did called Rat Park. I don't know. I can't remember what the name of the paper. I think was, I but, heard about that one. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce Alexander, Canadian psychologist, maybe. I don't know what exactly he did, but. The rough idea is you put rats in a cage by themselves and give them a bunch of cocaine. They're just going to do a bunch of cocaine. But you put rats in a cage with a bunch of other rats who have friends and wheels and a bunch of food. Then you give them the opportunity to do cocaine. They don't do so much cocaine. That's yep. the, roughly the idea. And it's like the yeah. idea is it's like when you have friends and, and activities and a job and resources, you're not going to do it. And Hannah Picard's another person. She's at Oxford, I think. Um, she, she also writes some about the influence of... Um, poverty and social status and stuff on it on addiction she's not a disease model person she's an anti-disease model person she's a middle of the road choice person but yeah another person who talks a lot about the influence of like social setting on on addicts awesome and knowledge too she thinks ignorance is a is a big driver for addiction hmm. well thanks for all those uh those resources that's really helpful yeah 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 thank you um and thanks for all the yeah just all the insight well, I, as I said, it's been a while, so hopefully you guys don't have uh, trained neuroscientists who are your <laughs> listeners <laughs> going to find my mistakes. But no, yeah, it's been a while, but it, but yeah, it's I think this stuff's super interesting. It's super important, and yeah, there's a lot. Definitely. I, I should say, too, the, maybe the last thing I'll say is I've talked a lot about the bad things about some of the research, and yeah. I think those people... Um, just to name one name, Nora Volkow, who's like the face of the brain disease model. She's the president of National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, she does really cool stuff. She's, from what I hear, a 
especially from Mark Lewis, her one of her big critics. Very pleasant person, and she does really cool stuff, really cool studies. Um, she's just wrong about some of the theory <laughs> stuff, but that's fine. So, but there's lots of good stuff out there. There's lots of yeah. lots of people doing good work. So it's not like I don't mean to trash the addiction literature. I think it's a great literature. Right. You don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Right. There's just some people are wrong. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it is. <laughs> yeah. So to be completely honest, when I, I made the love and addiction joke, I thought you were going to talk to us about love, but uh, uh, <laughs> this was great. <laughs> you had well, we'll, no idea. Uh, yeah. No. I, uh, <laughs> True I mean, so we'll, but we'll, we'll save the love questions for closer to Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. Mark Lewis's sort of famous argument in his book is the love argument. Oh, well... <laughs> What's the love Man. argument? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I like, yeah. We're running out of time, but please, t- yes, I know. please tell us. I'll try to do it really quick. So okay. Yeah. It's the, that book, The Biology of Desire, where he basically says, look, I'm going to give you all the brain changes. All of you neuroscientists are right. There's systematic changes to the brain. Sure. But it's not a disease. And here's why. Because of the love argument. He gives like seven arguments. And the, this is the last one that he thinks is most effective. He says, look, if addiction was a disease, so would be uh, passionate love at least some instances of passionate love. And here's why. Because in love, your brain is doing the same kind of thing um, neurophysiologically. It's learning certain behaviors and learning to desire certain situations. And there's an object of your desire, the beloved. And you're, you, literally your brain's doing a lot of the same things with the dopamine and so on. Um, you get the same kind of um, pathways built in your brain and the dopaminergic system. And uh, if the rough idea is if you took a snapshot of a someone who was deeply in love at some point and took a snapshot of their brain, uh, you could get the, an identical, qualitatively identical snapshot of an addict's brain. Someone who you would call an addict and you would call not an addict, but someone in love. He thinks it's possible for their brains to be basically qualitatively identical. But if it was just the brain changes that were making addiction a disease, then people who were in deep love, at least some of them, would be addicts. But they're not. And so addiction is not a disease. Well, if love is a disease, I hope we all are afflicted by it. <laughs> yeah. Well, he assumes it isn't. I guess that's <laughs> no, a, a hole in the hand, maybe. Um, well, Bob, thank you so much for being on and, and uh, sharing your knowledge, insight, and yourself with us. Thank you for having me. I was, it was a lot of fun. This is my first oh. ever podcast. So, oh, awesome. well, it was our pleasure. Um, I love it, and now may I may be addicted to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you are. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, Aaron and Bob. Well, yeah. so Aaron, a pleasure. It was it was a pleasure as always. Yes, it was, Gordon. And and Bob, it was it was a pleasure. Pleasure as well, Gordon, and pleasure, Aaron. Yes, Bob. All right. Take care. Uh, On that lovely note, talk to you guys later. See you. Bye. Black hole, son, won't you come? Won't you come?